Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm really glad that, you know, I get to preach from, from Selzen Hall, and there are a few people in here looking at me, so thank you. I need all your encouraging thumbs-ups. Thank you. Because I can't see you smile behind your masks. Um, it is always good to be with you, and um, as I think Lynn mentioned at the beginning, we, um, you know, it's been a tough week because we've had... We said, you know, we had David's funeral on um, Friday morning, which was stunning. I and mean, all the comments that we've had back because it was live streamed um, really, you know, typified who Dave was and explaining, you know, they all said what a, a brilliant tribute and what a brilliant morning it was uh, and a, a beautiful way to say goodbye to David. However, you know, we stand with Sue and the family still. We continue to pray for them. They are now working out what life looks like. The funeral is kind of out of the way and they're now moving into the next stage of mourning and grieving and and we as a church will continue to support them and continue to pray for them. I know Sue was absolutely thrilled with, you know, how Friday went, so that is good. Um It was only a couple of weeks ago that I stood here and preached on Romans 11, which at the time I I said was the toughest passage that I've ever had to look at. It challenged me on all sorts of levels. And and today I shouldn't actually be here. Jim was supposed to be preaching this passage this morning, but he's actually still unwell. As you you all know, both um, Jim and Ali have been diagnosed positive with COVID-19. Uh, Ali's doing better, but Jim is still massively unwell, so we do need to keep praying for him. I'm no Jim Baldwin, and I'm not going to be as funny as Jim. Even if I try, I'm not going to make it. Um, But I'm going to try and get some of the maths element in, if you like, uh, just so that you can say it was still a bit of a Jim Baldwin preach. Um, And I've told you, well, you know already that it's Romans 13. And both Neil and John said to me, oh, Jazz, this one's fine. This one's much more straightforward than Romans 11. And at first glance, it actually is. Um, There are some real clear instructions which actually could make for quite a rigid, quite an austere or even a legalistic preach. But actually, upon studying this passage and spending time in it, I feel that this passage actually speaks into our identity. It speaks into our position. It speaks into our calling. And it speaks into our standing in Christ. But not because of anything that we've ever done, but entirely based on Christ's work on the cross. And this morning, prophetically, as I was, as I was getting ready for today... I felt that God was, um, well, the Holy Spirit was going to be doing something beautiful amongst all of us. I saw it as, the only way I can describe it is threads of steel being placed into backbone this morning. And it's funny, I mean, it wasn't like a, a steel piece, but it was like threads of steel. So still pliable, I guess. But I felt that, that as, as that steel went into our backbones this morning, that all of us would find that we're able to stand just a little bit taller. We'd be able to know what it is to take up our position once more, uh, to have a strong and a bold stance, which is actually inspirational to everybody that is around you. So talking of the Holy Spirit, um, some of you may have seen my post on Facebook this week, but for those of you that didn't, we had um, our Alpha Holy Spirit Day last Saturday. And uh, I think that's the second time that we've done, done one on Zoom. And the first time we did one, I was a little bit apprehensive because how is a Holy Spirit Day going to work on Zoom? You know, how does God kind of get past all of the different 
stuff that's happening when we want to be in the same room and we understand the importance of laying hands on one another. But actually the first time it was beautiful and then last Saturday it was incredible again and two of the, the ladies there watching their countenance change as they encountered Jesus and one of them messaged me afterwards because oh, I just felt this incredible calm and, um, and she was beaming. She said, was that the Holy Spirit? And I'm like, yeah, it was the Holy Spirit. She was thrilled. And then when I caught up with her this week, she was like, Jazz, it was like, it was like going on a, one of those spa days. It was like a Holy Spirit spa day, which I quite enjoyed. I quite liked that description of it. But there was a, there's a guy on our course as well who didn't really feel that he encountered the Holy Spirit. And I didn't say anything to anybody, but um, someone sent me a prophetic word for him this week. And so this Thursday, when we gathered together on Zoom, I spoke out that prophetic word over him. And he was utterly blown away by it. You could just see the cogs whirring in his mind. Wow, somebody would bother to write that out to you and then send it. You know, it was just the convoluted route of getting it to him. But he was utterly thrilled. So God is at work. He gets overcomes all of the Zoom stuff and the COVID stuff. And um, the word of God and his activity cannot be stopped. Amen. So that was the Holy Spirit Day. I just thought I'd share that with you. God is not restrained by COVID-19. So just as I begin, I want you to be aware that in my opening remarks, I have already used the numbers 11, 13, 19, and now I'm going to be starting at verse 1, so I can tick off the promised maths element of this preach. I never promised you equations, did I? So there you go. Beginning in verse 1, we have this, Romans 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which, is, which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So this first part of the chapter really is about the church and the state. That's what it's about. That's what it's referring to. And first of all, I'm sure we've been, we've been learning over the last few weeks as we've been in Romans that Paul is writing into a really volatile situation. The Christians are in a minority and the Romans hold the balance of power. The Roman Empire in this particular context was in a complete mess. We've had Claudius, we've got Nero. It's been a hotbed of infighting, debauchery, murder, lies, slander and immorality. That is what's going on in the governing authorities. The people in charge were behaving in a shocking manner. And yet it is into this context that Paul reminds the Christians they are, they are to submit to the governing authorities because it's established by God. And if you don't submit, you're inviting judgment on yourself. And he rightly points out that if you do what is right, 
you have nothing to fear, do you? So it's that thing, isn't it? Um, anybody ever been driving and um, you've gone slightly over the speed limit and you've seen those flashes in your rear view mirror as the speed camera has caught you? And, uh, and then you kind of live in that really weird world, waiting to see if you're going to get a, a letter dropped through your door, um, you know, suggesting that you pay this fine or do a speed awareness course or something. The reality is that had you been going at the speed limit, of course, that never would have happened. Had you been obedient to the rules of the road, you would never have even feared the camera flashing behind you in your rearview mirror. And, and so that's kind of my little way of explaining that, that actually when we are obedient, when we stick to what we, what's asked of us, when we have nothing to fear. In fact, we're commended for being obedient. And... Um, Paul reminds us that all governing authorities are instituted by God. The authorities have purpose. They establish laws to deal with crime and exert rule over people. And yet, even as I make that statement, I am sure that many of you are wondering, well, what about all those regimes that have been cruel and have instituted evil things? I don't need to name them. I know that they can come to mind straight away. We can think of governing authorities that have done illegal things. In fact, there have been some governing authorities that have used this particular passage to to control people, to say, no, you've got to do what I say because the Bible says it. And if you don't do it, you're inviting judgment upon yourself. There have been some evil things done by governing authorities. So do we blindly accept it all? That's the question you need to ask yourself. So just to help you a little bit, there are four positions of relationship between the church and the state. Number one, the state controls the church. And we know there are nations right now where where that happens. Number two, the church, sorry, what did I say? The state controls the church. Number two, the church controls the state, which has happened historically. Number three, The state favours the church and the church accommodates the state. And number four, the church and the state recognise and encourage one another in their God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. So where do we fit in in all of this? What we need to understand is our position. We need to understand that actually we have dual citizenship. That's our position. Let me try and explain that for you. You all know that I was born in India and uh, came over to the UK when I was small. And after seven years of living here without any break and not traveling anywhere, I became what's known as a naturalized British citizen. So I am 100% a British citizen. British citizen. I have a passport that says so. You can't take that away from me. It declares it. However... I'm also 100% Indian. I was born in India. My parents were Indian. My great, 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 great grandparents, however far you want to go back, Indian. So I'm 100% Indian. I'm 100% British. And when I meet people in the UK, people make rightly the assumption that I must be Indian. I can understand that. They, They look at me, oh, she comes from India. But when I'm in India... People do not presume I'm Indian. 
because actually my manner is different. My, um, my clothing is different. My, my, my humour is different. The way that I speak is different. I even speak Punjabi with an English accent, would you believe? I actually do. And although, um, and you know, even in, and my Punjabi is old fashioned now because I know it from my family. And when you go to India, it's all kind of a mix of, well, they call it Hindi and English. They call it Hinglish because the English language has penetrated Hindi so much. And so even my language is old. So even when I'm in India, people realize that I'm not Indian very, very quickly. I don't 100% fit in India and I don't 100% fit here. So I live in this bubble, like many, many people do. We live in this like really weird bubble that kind of just makes sense for us. That's my, um, so as Christians, I'm going to suggest that we also live in a slightly weird world. That we have dual citizenship. We don't live in this world. We're not a resident of this world. We actually live in another world. Our passport as Christians, if you like, is entirely different. We're asked here to submit to governing authorities, and that is right, we should. But our greater authority is God. And if the governing authority conflicts negatively with God's law, then we submit to God's law. I'm not suggesting writing and violence and arguments, but with the Holy Spirit direction and his leading. It's there in the Bible. People disobeyed the governing authorities in the Bible. I mean, Sally mentioned Mary for us earlier on, did she not? And in a few weeks' time, we'll be listening to the, the, the Christmas story. And uh, in that, you'll notice that, of course, Mary and Joseph flee Nazareth to get away from, the, from King Herod's rule of killing babies under two, male babies under two. The Magi were instructed by the king to come back and tell him when they found Jesus. But actually they disobeyed and they left as well through the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so there are times when actually we have to recognize that the governing law is not God's law and we are subject to God's law over and above that. But through the Holy Spirit direction, we need to be very careful and seek wisdom and all of that. I don't want to counsel you to do anything else. Christians throughout history have indeed challenged governments and seen changes. I could mention Wilberforce or Shaftesbury and countless others. Even Mother Teresa, who in her later stages of her life, earned the right to challenge governments. And we know men and women have been prepared to speak up. Even in the last, as I understand it, in the last century, there have been more Christian martyrs um, who are men and women who have spoken up than any time between year naught and 1899. Maybe we aren't all called to big, huge projects, but this passage puts a personal responsibility in all of us to speak out um, if we see things that are happening that go against God. And even as I'm speaking this morning, I think some of you will be aware of injustices. And I believe God will lead you to speak up. Some of you are politically motivated. I'm not. But I'm really grateful to all of you that are, who are willing to get involved and bring an intelligent contribution to the running of this country. Most of us don't get involved in the big thing. But all of us still have a call uh, on our lives to follow God and his rule. 
Governments and, governments and authorities do, of course, aim to get it right. Of course they do. I know for, for myself, <laughs> I know that I wouldn't want to have been in Boris Johnson's shoes in the last few months. Um, it's easy to judge him. People make lots of comments on him. It's in our papers. It's on our social media. It's easy to pass a, a, a remark over him that is derogatory. But we aren't wearing his shoes. We aren't carrying the things that that he's carrying. We're not privy to the information that he's got. And he actually is leading our government. And so we need to trust. And unless he's doing something that's completely against God, we are trusting our government. It's our duty. Yes, governments do get it wrong and terrible things have happened. And as I've said, that these verses have been used in a controlling way. Uh, forcing people to submit when they shouldn't have done. But however, our citizenship is in another realm. Our primary calling is to serve the one who came to serve us, motivated by love, which is what this passage pivots on. So I'm going to read the next, la- next little bit, which starts at verse 5, I think, on here. That's another number for you. That's the math element. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Oh, sorry, I'm going to carry on. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. First of all, in that little section, Paul is picking up Jesus' teaching of giving to Caesar that that is Caesar's. Basically, pay off your debts, do your taxes, don't be silly about it. Get over yourself. If you owe money to the government, sort it out. Deal with it. But when it comes to love and only love, that is our highest calling. That's the only debt that remains outstanding. He names all of these commandments, he mentions them, he knows that they're the rules, but he reminds us that all of this is wrapped up in love. And then as we read from verse 11, Paul begins to paint a picture of a coming day. And he says this, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In all of this passage, which does seem severe, Paul points us back to Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Here is the clearest call that there possibly can be to be ruthless with sin, to do all you can to move away from sin, not just move away, but to flee from sin. 
Paul talks about the deeds of the darkness, which is symbolic, isn't it? It's symbolic of the things that are hidden, things that we'd want covered over, things that we wouldn't want exposed. And he contrasts it with daytime. You know, all the things that, and all the things that Paul mentions can, of course, happen in the day. But we understand the analogy. I was um, thinking of my friend who, um, he's an alcoholic. And um, I'm really hoping he never hears this, but he might do. And uh, he's an alcoholic. And he has this bizarre rule that you can't start drinking until 4 p.m. in the afternoon. I don't know where that rule comes from. But you know what? He wakes up at 3.59 every day. There is something about him in his understanding that you drink only in the afternoon and evenings. And so he sleeps all day during the daytime until such a point that he knows he can wake up and start drinking. I don't know how that works in the head. I'm not going to try and even explain it. But there's something of the darkness in, in that statement. But have you also noticed the, the recent trend for self-care? Certainly when I open up even a, a paper or I um, look at a magazine or anything on social media, or even on the TV, uh, people are talking about self-care, particularly because of all the stuff that's gone on in the last few months. And people are talking about taking time out and mindfulness and even strong encouragements not to take your phone to bed. Um, I got really convicted of that this summer. Uh, I read a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Really recommend it to you if you haven't read it, but it really challenged me not to take my phone to bed. And, uh, you know, and science has proven that if you, or people have proven, I don't know how it works, that the blue light doesn't help you sleep. But also the temptation is if you're not sleeping, it's just to click, click, click and go down all sorts of rabbit warrens. But I love it when science catches up with scripture. Because actually, all these people that are giving us this good advice, if you look in Scripture, you know, God tells us to rest, does he not? It's right there, right at the beginning. And there are encouragements all the way through Scripture about meditating, about spending time with God. You know, if you looked at Psalm 1, for example, it talks about the man that is blessed, that, is, that meditates in the law of God day and night. He's like a tree planted by the water who bears his fruit in season, who doesn't, his leaves do not wither and who prospers. And it's right there. You know, people talk about mindfulness as this new trendy thing. No, 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 no. God had it right at the beginning. It's, you know, meditating on his word, feeding on that. I say that because whatever we feast upon, our appetite for that increases. Let me try and explain something for you. A few weeks ago when I was preaching, I talked about how Google knew everything about us. But actually, I want to talk about Amazon this morning because whatever you're searching or whatever you mention, Amazon suddenly gives you lots of images of all extra things that you can buy. Yep. And um, so if I say the word paint, um, I don't know, and I'm, I've searched something or whatever, I suddenly discover Amazon gives me lots of options of different paints for me to want to buy. And it does that because they understand, there's, there's a psyche that understands that actually if you start doing something, you'll continue to do it more and more. And so Amazon wants me to feed my appetite for wanting more paint and more brushes and more canvases and so on. So whatever you feast upon is what you 
grow in yourself. It gives you your appetite for that grows. And actually, I was just thinking, um, I don't know about anybody else, but I don't know if you noticed that Alan was singing in worship this morning. He was up with the band. I've never seen Alan worship in the band before. And, uh, and so I, I commented that to, to Lynn earlier on, and she said, oh, well, actually, what happened, Jazz, was that in their life group, they've been worshipping on Zoom, and, Lynn and Lynn's been leading that, and then Alan's been joining in and singing with Lynn. And what's happened is his appetite, his desire to use his voice more publicly has grown in him. And so this morning, you know, he was able to say, well, actually, I would like to come and worship uh, and lead other people in worship. His appetite, he feasted upon it, and his appetite for that grew. It's actually a scientific fact. So although this list looks like a whole list of do-nots, and yes, on one level it is, we can't fulfill this if we spend our lives going, we must not, we must not, we must not, we must not. Because then all we're doing is thinking about the thing that we must not be thinking about. We fulfill this list by worshipping and feasting on Jesus and eagerly anticipating the day that he comes. This passage, in essence, is a a provocation to seek and to meditate on God and in doing so be so filled with the Holy Spirit in every fibre of our being that actually our appetite and our desire for God grows over and above the things of the world. Is that cool? So you know your position. You know that it's a dual citizenship. You know that you belong to God. You're in another world. You have a different passport. And you know that you are absolutely called to love God and in worshipping him and in, in enjoying him and feasting upon him. Actually, you're not striving to do the do nots. He helps you to do the do-nots. So let me pray for us. I also want to pray for Jim, and I'm really aware that Fran, I'm sure many of you saw, she'd been in hospital this week. I think Angus already mentioned that. Um, She's still unwell, and there are plenty of other things going on in our fellowship. So let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I thank you that you speak to us so clearly. And I want to thank you for the governments that we have here in the UK. And I want to speak a blessing over them, over the people that are making decisions for us. Father, I pray you'd give them wisdom beyond their own and understanding that you would help them to make good decisions on our behalf. And Father, as men and women of God, we want to just lean into you. We want to receive from you. We want to hear your voice, your leading, your direction, and your wisdom. Father, where you're calling, uh, calling us out to speak out in injustice, where you're giving us opportunity to speak up for those that cannot speak up for themselves. Father, break our heart for those situations. Give us gifts of compassion so that we can indeed do those things. And Father, our desire is to feast on you more and more, to be men and women that love your word that love you, that want to worship you, that want to grow an appetite for the things of you, not for the things of the world. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to increase our desire for you. I want to thank you for moments like last Saturday with the Holy Spirit Day, just seeing you at work in people's lives. 
want to thank you for Friday morning and just how incredible it was to be able to, to be together and to be able to, to thank you for David and the example that he was to all of us. And Father, we want to lift up Jim and Ali to you. We want to pray for Fran and for others in our church that we know are ill or struggling and facing huge things. And Father, we stand together and we ask you to intervene, to break into each of those situations, to bring healing where healing needs to come, to break, bring the breakthrough that people are looking for. And Father, this morning we receive your your threads of steel that are being put in our backbone. But Father, we want to stand tall, knowing our position, knowing our stance, knowing that you, God, have called us and you have plans and purposes for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.